Birth and death are a part of the human experience. Everyone is born and everyone dies. The Bible describes our life as a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. It describes life like grass. Green one minute, flourishing, and dead the next. These metaphors describe what you and I experience every day. What we know is true. I remember a number of years ago, a radio host, Christian fellow who would take questions. And one of the things he would teach on his radio broadcast is that humanity has a 100% mortality rate. Everyone dies. You can pray and you can have faith that you'll be healed, but at the end of the day, everyone dies. Even Lazarus died. Like the morning grass, we are green and flourishing, but when the summer heat sets in, we're scorched, withered away, and die. Our life is only momentary. It's short. As one author describes, your life is no longer than the steam from your morning shower. Each of us, however, approach this shared experience in different ways. Some seek to ignore the foregone reality that we'll die. We live as if we'll live forever on earth. Others live in fear of death. Afraid of an invisible virus, speeding cars, or some unknown illness that you've yet to be diagnosed with. Some cancer living within your body that the doctors have yet to discover. Still others live with a more balanced approach. Well, we're all going to die, so that's just part of life. A sort of passivity to death. An acknowledgement, but yet passivity. And And seemingly Christian perspective. Perhaps the one I hear most from Christians is the the sort of passive approach. That's just a part of life. And we all are going to die. But friends, as Christians, our approach, our perspective is very different. This morning in John chapter 20, we see one who's probably not far from us. A sister named Mary Magdalene. You see, she lived with the perspective that that death was normal, that it was a part of everyday life. You see, death was all she knew. She knew that when you die, when when you were killed, you die. When you hung upon a cross, you die. You don't you don't get up from that. You don't get over that. Death isn't some sickness that, you know, time will will heal. But early that Passover morning, something had changed in her perspective. Someone had died, but that someone didn't stay dead. Jesus was gone, and she was frantic. Where did he go? But in her mind, she could not even fathom that Jesus was alive, but rather that someone stole his body. As the story unfolds, we learn that no one took Jesus. No no grave robbers came by and, and stole his body, but rather that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Something abnormal happened. Something radical happened. 
where death has its grip on every one of us. Nothing we can do. No drug we can take. No vaccine we can shove in our arm. No potion we can consume will prolong our life. One day we will die. But not for Jesus. Jesus declared his authority over life and death. Jesus tore death's grip from him and stood alive victorious three days after his execution. The author of life rose from the dead. Friends, as Christians, that truth perhaps just washes over us this morning. That truth, because it's so familiar with us. We just know it so much. We, we're, we're just so intimately involved with Christianity that it just becomes kind of second nature. A dead man rose from the dead. What? No science can ever explain that. No reason could ever Explain it. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle miracle in all of the scriptures. That which was dead is dead. But Jesus Christ overcame death. Friends, this is the truth we want to think about this morning in God's word. We want to renew our trust that Jesus Christ really was dead and he really is alive today. That he really lives forever. And that we too can live in him. A number of weeks ago we were in John chapter 19. Where we saw Jesus' arrest, his trial, his conviction, and ultimately his execution. Jesus though did not die a helpless victim to fate. But willingly submitted himself from his incarnation from eternity past to his incarnation. To, to every aspect of his life. It was a willing Submission to the Father's will to die on the cross, not for his own sin, not for something he had done wrong. He was innocent, completely innocent, had done nothing to deserve death. The Jews trumped up charges against him. Pilate, trying to be spiteful and trying to kind of get at the Jews, declared that he was the king who would die. The king of the Jews. And we saw there that through the cross, the Father's wrath was satisfied and our forgiveness secured. That those that are in Christ no longer have the wrath of God remaining on them. Today, God's not angry with you. God, God's not divine judgment isn't coming upon you because you didn't read your Bible this week or because you didn't pray or because you did some sinful act. But if you are in Christ this morning, every ounce of God's wrath, every ounce of God's divine justice, judgment that your sin and my sin rightly deserve, we believe has been fully satisfied on the cross. That Jesus drank all of the cup of God's wrath. And chapter 19 ended with this solemn scene. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, using his tomb as they prepared his body. And one Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler, 
of the Jews who had come to faith and became a disciple of Jesus. They're wrapping his body in those linen cloths and wrapping his head where where the blood would have oozed through the, the, the gauze as they wrapped him. And they anointed his body for death and laid him in that new tomb and put a stone over it. And the scene that John depicts was, was meant to grab our attention and to, to capture the point. There was no life in Jesus. Not an ounce. This wasn't that Jesus was just in shock from the pain that he had just experienced on the cross. It wasn't that Jesus was just having a really bad day. But rather Jesus was dead. His heart stopped beating. His brain had no function. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, died the death we deserve. And as John closes these final chapters, he wants us to have in mind everything that we've read up to this point. John is not, again, communicating mere historical fact. John isn't just being a really good historian and reading all the details and and laying them before us. No, John has a point, and we'll see this morning that point at the end of chapter 20. Namely, that John wants you this morning to have spiritual eyes to see Jesus, the risen Lord, and believe in Him and have eternal life. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 20 if you've not done so already. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, And they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not laying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. 
Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Well, friends, I I hope you saw throughout that the idea, the main point. That Jesus is vindicated in death and declares victory through the resurrection so that all those who believe in him might have eternal life. The purpose of our time, really the purpose of this passage, is to give us eternal hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To reassure our hearts as Christians that since Jesus lives, we live forever with him. And our passage this morning describes to us a number of encounters with the risen Lord. First, Peter and John. John doesn't mention himself by name, kind of just trying to put deference. He's like, nah, I'm not going to mention my name. So he's the the disciple whom Jesus loved, unnamed. We we see in that first encounter, Jesus in the empty tomb and and Peter and John going in. And then another encounter of Mary with Jesus. And then the disciples in Jesus. And then finally Thomas in Jesus. Throughout this passage, I hope you saw the repetition of one verb. And that is to see. Thirteen times in this one chapter that verb is used. To see. And then finally in sort of a culminating conclusion. John says Jesus did many other things. Where? In the presence. In the sight of his disciples. In other words, what we are to take away from this isn't that we need to see Jesus in order to believe in him. But that we are to trust the eyewitness accounts that are recorded for us here in John chapter 20. Lest we become like Thomas. Lest we become disbelieving because we need to see with our eyes. And so our prayer this morning is through these four encounters, 
with the risen Lord that we might see Jesus ourselves. So the overarching question you want to have in your mind is, do I want to see Jesus? Well, friend, if that's true of you, if that's true of you, believer, then you must have faith in Jesus. You must trust Jesus and in Jesus alone. For if you do not trust Jesus, if you do not believe upon him, you will never see the risen Lord. You will never see him as, as the risen Lord. And so this morning, let's look at these, these three encounters. First, in verses 1 through 10, John records his encounter, Peter's encounter, with an empty tomb. Now, we're told that Mary had gone to the tomb early in the morning. Other synoptic gospels say that Mary wasn't alone, that she had some other women with her. Here, John just kind of focuses in on, on Mary being there. Perhaps she was the spokesman of the group. Maybe she was like that, uh, you know, in your Sunday school class, you got the one lady who's always talking. Maybe Mary was like that. She, she was the representative. She's the one that had all the answers. Uh, she's the one that, uh, that always was raising her hand. And, and Mary is, is there in the tomb. And as she arrives, she sees a shocking, shocking scene. A scene that would have shocked any one of us. Uh, you know, if we would have gone out to the cemetery and, and to see our loved one, to maybe lay some flowers on their tombstone, and, and, and behold, we, we arrive and, and find that someone has dug up the grave. We would have been furiated. We would have been upset. We would have been trying to find the, whoever's running the cemetery and say, hey, where did you take my loved one? Where did they go? In the scene here, Mary supposes that someone has come and robbed the body of Jesus. Perhaps some zealous disciple, someone who had followed Jesus at a distance. She really doesn't know where Jesus is. Perhaps it was the Jews. So Mary here, in verses 1 through 3, just sort of supposes that some, some thievery has taken place. And so she runs back to the disciples and she, she, she goes to Peter and says, Look, someone has taken the body of Jesus. And Peter, being that you know, zealous disciple that he always was, the, you know, the teacher's pet, he, he leaps up and begins to run, and, and John with him, and they, they run to the tomb. We, we're not told how far the distance was, but they run back there. John getting there first, looking in, but not going in. Peter arriving, and Peter just going head first, right? He, he's ready to go. Dives into the tomb. So, so don't picture something big. He would have had to stoop and kind of crawl his way in there. He crawls in and they begin to make observations. And, and friends, this is what we want to observe. John here is describing his eyewitness account. The, the text doesn't say, yeah, me and Peter went to the tomb and it was empty. And we went home. It doesn't say that. Look at the detail for which John describes. And look, John has spared some detail in this gospel. But here in chapter 20, he spares no detail. Look with me again what he says. Verse, tw um, uh, verse 14. Having said this, oh, I'm ready. Sorry, I'm looking ahead. Verse 4. Both of them running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in to look. Again, here's that verb, to see, to look. Looked, he saw, there it is again, he saw what? Linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came in following him, and he went into the tomb. There it is. He saw linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which has been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in place. Look at the detail. that They both are notating that this repetition about these, these cloths that have been wrapped around Jesus when he was buried. 
John, had, at the end of chapter 19, went to length to describe Nicodemus and Joseph's behavior of wrapping him and anointing his body. Why? Well, because if someone had just kind of came in and stole the body of Jesus, why would they have gone to trouble to unwrap him? They wouldn't have done that. They would have kept his body wrapped up. And then, then there's a sort of emphasis on the fact that this, the, the, the head shroud was taken and folded neatly in place. And, and some have you know, made a big to-do about this. But the point is, is the, the recollection of the eyewitness account. And brothers and sisters, we know that eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable. Eyewitnesses, you could see an accident right out here and you get five or six different perspectives. But here we're getting all these same stories agreeing. Everyone saw, and, and, and as other disciples would reflect on this, that there's the same thing. As, as, for example, Paul would argue in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that Jesus was witnessed by 500 other disciples post-resurrection. So, so it wasn't just a conspiracy among one or two or 12. This was a, this was a big thing. And here we see this detail, this orderly tomb to, to help reassure us that Jesus' body wasn't stolen. It wasn't as the Jews supposed um, taken away by his disciples and buried somewhere else. No, these eyewitnesses saw it just as clear as you and I would see it. And I want you to notice what happens when John sees this empty tomb. Look there at verse 8. Then the other disciple, that is John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. You see that correlating? It's a correlating conjunction there. He saw and as a result, believed. It was like the light bulb went off. All those years of teaching had come rushing into his mind by the power of the Spirit, and he believed. Well, what did he believe? Did he believe that Jesus was a spirit who had floated up into heaven and, and put harps in the sky? Did he believe that, that Jesus was now with the Father and all things? No, no, no. Look what he said. Verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he, that is Jesus, must rise from the dead. Boom, he says. It all became clear. All those times Jesus referred to his death. All those times uh, like that, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that he might draw all men to himself. All those times when he, he knew that Jesus was referencing a future life post the cross, it all made sense to him. Passages like Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Or in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 through 7. Where Isaiah prophesies that the Messiah will live forever. When he writes with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. Or in Isaiah's picture of the suffering servant. In Isaiah 53 verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. 
It was according to the scriptures that Jesus rose from the dead. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, that it was for our justification that Jesus Christ was raised. You know, so often we look to the cross and we say, that's where our justification is. That's where God's wrath. And it is true. But Paul argues similarly, without the resurrection of Christ, all of that is meaningless. This is what he argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He writes this, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Let me just stop there. Paul says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of first importance. You deny the resurrection of Jesus, you deny the gospel itself. You can't have, you can't have it both ways. You, you can't say that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what you live by and deny the bodily resurrection of Christ. He says it's of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. Here it is. In accordance with the scriptures. See the apostles teaching is that Jesus had to rise from the dead. That it was according to the prophecies of the Messiah. As he goes on to argue. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And he concludes by writing, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of our most people most to be pitied, he says. In other words, friends, if the resurrection of Christ did not happen, and I mean the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that what we have here are not eyewitness accounts of a spirit, but of a real man, Real flesh and blood. That he rose again from the dead. That he was dead and is now alive and he lives forevermore. If that is not true, then we might as well all just go home. We might as well close this building down. Sell it to the, to get, the I mean, get the most money out of it, of course. Sell it to the highest bidder. And go on with our life. That's what Paul says. And that's what John is teaching. You see, the resurrection of Christ isn't just to be something celebrated once a year on Easter. Do you know Christians have for the last 2,000 years understood that every Sunday is the Lord's Day? That every Sunday is Easter? Why is that? Well, look here at chapter 20, verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. It's because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. That's why we worship on Sunday, not on Saturday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. Not kind of, you know, the convenience of our work schedules. In fact, for the early disciples, Sunday was a work day. Sunday would have been our Monday. But they turned up to church anyways and gathered with God's people. Because what they gathered to celebrate was the hope of the resurrection. Friend, do you believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Have you ever really considered it? Is it just something passively? Oh, yes. Yeah, he is. One cannot deny the literal body resurrection of Christ and be saved. Friend, we want to push against that false doctrine. There are many who claim the name of Christ and who would deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And, and, and friend, we are doing them no service. We are, we are showing them no love 
by, by enabling them to believe a lie. So this morning, if you are wrestling with the literal resurrection of Christ, do not stop wrestling with that. Seek out your elders, seek out the pastors, seek out other Christians around you and diligently seek to believe that Christ has been raised from the dead. As Paul says, if we have hope only in this life, we are a pitied people. Well, the next encounter comes in this way. Mary Magdalene in chapter 21, verses 11 through 18. We see Mary here encountering the risen Lord. She's there weeping by the tomb, we are told, upset. Not quite sure what happened there with Peter and John. They seem to uh, kind of leave and, and Mary's there. Perhaps unconvinced by their arguments that Jesus has risen. She's there weeping by the tomb and, and she sees these two angels and, and these angels ask her, why are you weeping? And again, Jesus standing there and she can't even, she's in such shock over what she's just witnessed in his execution. She can't imagine. Again, she doesn't have a category for, for someone getting out of the, the tomb. No more than you would, would you? I mean, you wouldn't go down and visit your loved one expecting to visit them. If you do, we can talk after church. Because uh, <laughs> you might need help. Right? We don't do that. And neither does Mary. And so she's in shock because of everything that's going on. She sees these angels... Jesus, she supposed Jesus to be a gardener. And she asked again, that same concern she had, where have you taken his body? And Jesus, in the most gracious way he can, just calls out her name, Mary. And upon doing that, she recognizes him. Like, like the two brothers on the road to Emmaus who, who spent the whole day with Jesus and didn't see him until he broke bread. It was as if there was something about Jesus saying her name that, that clicked in her mind that, that this is my Savior. And what John wants us to take away from this isn't merely the experience, but what Jesus said. Notice what Jesus does here. Number one, he gives a woman the message. He doesn't reveal this to Peter and John. He, he doesn't say, you know, he doesn't come to Peter and John and say, hey guys, I want you to take this message to my disciples. No, friends, this is radically different for this culture. To have a woman communicating divine truth. And, and Jesus here is graciously helping this sister see that she has an important role in the life of God's people. And he he says to her, I want you to take this message to my brothers. Jesus said to her, verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. In other words, Mary was still being short-sighted. She wasn't thinking eternal. She was thinking temporal. Just like we want to hold on to our loved ones and not let them go. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Now, a couple of things we want to note about that. Number one, he calls them my brothers. Nowhere in all of this gospel has he ever referred to disciples as his brothers. Furthermore, he describes God as not only his Father, which he has done throughout, but now refers to God as their father. 
Now, again, you and I can be so familiarized with that language. We pray, my Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We, we pray that way. We think that way. God is our Father. But for a Jew who knew their Bible, the Old Testament rarely depicts God as a Father in the idea that, that Jesus is presenting here. The Old Testament presents God as a, as a providential Father, one who provides but never in the terms that Jesus uses in an intimate relationship as adopted sons and daughters. What is Jesus using? He's using family language, isn't he? My brothers, my father, sister. What's changed? The cross and the resurrection changed everything. This is evidence that what Jesus did on the cross and through the resurrection accomplished what he set out to do. As John began this gospel, he said this in John chapter 1 and verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. Remember, that's the goal, belief. What happened? He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of flesh nor or nor not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man but of God. See that's the whole point of the gospel has been driving to this point and this message that Jesus gives to her isn't just some passive like plan like hey this is the plans for this evening I'm going to come by just let them make sure they're ready. No, no, the message that, that, that this sister is carrying is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that their relationship with God has been transformed, that no longer are they separated from God, alienated from God, but rather they have been invited into the family of God. That Jesus is not merely their Lord, but their big brother. That God is not merely this divine being, but he is their intimate father, Jesus, their brother. And that they have been adopted into a family, that they are now a part of God's people. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Through all that Jesus accomplished, we, by faith, have been adopted into his family. This is why we use terms like brother and sister. Not because we, you know, some southern folks, that, that calls everybody brother and sister. Or because we forget people's names. Brother so-and-so. I don't know his name. Let's call him brother. Right. No, it has meaning. I've used this illustration before, but down in Georgia... Back during the uh, late 18th century, there's records of Baptist churches when, when they'd excommunicate somebody because of grievous sin. In their church meeting minutes, it would change from brother so-and-so to friend so-and-so. Because what they were doing was removing their affirmation that that person was a brother or sister in Christ. Because their, their willful rebellion against God they could no longer say that they were a brother or sister. Friends, the point is this, that, that we are now 
in a relationship with God that has been transformed, which has been radically changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We who were once far off have been brought near. Friend, this morning, you too can be a part of the family of God. You know, the secular world wants everyone to be children of God. You hear that a lot, that language, you know, we're all children of God or children of some divine being. Friend, if you're a Christian, you just push against that. That is not true. That, 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 that syncretism, that, that we're all sort of relate. No, no, no. We are all children of Adam, condemned to eternal judgment. And by faith, we become a part of God's family, a new family, a new creation, a new people. As Peter will go on to describe in 1 Peter, a new race. And one of the things as Christians we want to fight against is a confusion of our identity. In other words, we want to have our identity more closely connected, not to what's external, what's worldly, but rather who we are in Christ. That we, though different and diverse, are all in the same family. That means that we treat each other like we're in the same family. And perhaps because we're so accustomed to treating our own family members here on earth so poorly, we treat one another so poorly. But as Christians, we want to treat one another as brothers and sisters. Love one another. Pray for one another. Give our, ourselves to one another. Loving support Helping. Just as much as we would help our own flesh and blood, we want to see everyone around us who are in Christ sharing that same blood. The resurrection of Christ gives us this new relationship with God and with one another. No longer are we separated because of our sin, but Christ has accomplished our forgiveness. Our position allows us to cry out, Abba, Father, Father, hear my prayer and answer for your glory. Well, this leads us to yet a third encounter. In verses 19 through 23, Jesus' disciples encounter the risen Lord. We're told there in verse 19 through 23 that his disciples are, are hunkered down, right? Got the doors locked. They're scared of the Jews. They're scared that they're next, that there's a, a cross being built for them. And so they're hiding out. You might think, well, why are they so afraid of the Jews? Well, if you remember back to Jesus' trial in chapter 18, Ananias and the high priest and the council were asking Jesus a lot of questions about his disciples. You see, the one thing they hoped to do was kill the leader. But the last thing they wanted is to create a spark, a fire, that would have created sort of a spreading effect among others who were following Jesus. And so they wanted to squash not only Jesus, but anyone who was following him. And so the, Jew, the, the Jews perhaps had made threats to them or, or something. And so the disciples are hiding out and we're told that Jesus comes to them, passing through walls. So clearly his resurrected body is different than the, his original body. And he comes to them and declares, peace be with you. Three times in, in this latter part of chapter 20, um, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. Jesus here is reassuring his disciples. He's assuring them 
that everything he taught has been accomplished. You remember back in chapter 14, Jesus says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. See, they had forgotten that. That was just a few days earlier. Earlier that week, Jesus had there in the upper room told them, listen, I give you my peace. Don't be troubled. This world is troubled. There's going to be tribulation. But believe in me. Trust me. I will accomplish what I have set out to do. And and here you see the disciples so quickly forgetting Jesus' teaching. And he reminds them that peace I leave with you. As he said later there in the upper room, he says, I have said these things to you. In other words, my teaching that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus here, post-resurrection, saying to the disciples, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He's not saying, you know, hey, hello guys, like shalom, peace. Sort of customary Jewish hello. That's not what Jesus is doing. No, Jesus is, is packing in this phrase all that theology that he taught them that he is the overcomer. And that his bodily resurrection demonstrates that he has overcome. Friends, that's why we have hope in the resurrection. Because it is in the resurrection that we have assurance that Jesus has accomplished what he set out. Let's imagine for a moment this morning. We're gathered here celebrating the resurrect or celebrating the death of Christ without a resurrection. What hope do we have? What assurance do we have that Jesus actually accomplished what he set out to do? If Jesus is still in some tomb over in the Middle East, we have no confidence, no assurance. But the fact that Jesus is standing before his disciples, that Jesus is alive today, assures us that that Jesus has satisfied all that he has set out to do. That he is the one who truly has authority over life and death. And that's what comforts us this morning. But Jesus not only assures his disciples when they see him, but he commissions them to take this message to the world. Notice what he says there in verse 22. Oh, rather, verse 21. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Jesus here commissions them. The the word apostle means sent once. They were commissioned to to go, to be representatives of Jesus. And, And the point that you and I want to understand from this is that their teaching was as if Jesus himself taught it. Now, some of y'all this morning might have a red letter Bible. You might put emphasis on Jesus's words over and against, and that runs in the face of this verse. A red letter Bible does. Why? Because Jesus understood that every word in the Bible was his word. Red, black, purple. It was all his word. That everything that the apostles pinned down by the inspiration of the Spirit was as if Jesus of Nazareth himself was speaking it to you. So if you want a red letter Bible, 
call up your publisher and just say, make it all red, because it's all Jesus. All right? They spoke the words of Jesus. They, they, they went out and, and taught the message. I am sending you just as the Father, he says. So there's this sort of causal authority between the disciples, a representative authority. As, he'll, as he said to them at the beginning of the upper room discourse, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I sent receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. You understand the, the relation, the causal relationship, the representative relationship? If you reject the disciples' teaching, then you reject Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, then you re- reject the Father. And there's many within the church and outside of the church that re- reject the apostles' teaching. They say things like this. Jesus never taught that homosexuality was sin. That was the apostle Paul. You see why that red letter Bible gets you in trouble? They say things like Jesus never condemned anyone. He never judged anyone. It was those disciples that were just scoundrels judging people all the time. No, Jesus makes clear that my disciples have authority, that these apostles go out as divine representatives of God, that when they speak by the power of the Spirit, they speak on God, on behalf of God himself. Mark records this conversation in this way in Mark chapter 16. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Some might be troubled by what Jesus says to them. As he pours out his spirit upon him, he he commissions them with a message If you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. What's Jesus mean? Jesus doesn't mean that the disciples, the apostles, had authority, eternal authority, to to judge the living and the dead. No, that's Jesus. All right, now hear me. But Jesus gives his people authority to declare what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gave that authority to the local church, to you. And when you affirm someone's membership in this local church, what you're doing is you're saying, as best as we know, from what we understand of their confession and their life and what we see in Scripture, that they are a Christian. And when we remove people from membership because of unrepentant sin, we're removing that affirmation. We're saying as best as we can tell right now, they are not confessing Jesus as Lord because of this willful rebellion against God in their life. Inherently, our message is a message of forgiveness But if one does not repent of their sins, they have no hope of of forgiveness. And brothers and sisters, this is the point you need to take away from. You are doing no one any good. You are helping no one get to heaven faster. By confusing what sin is and what sin isn't. And we can throw labels about acceptance and tolerance and love But at the end of the day, it is not loving 
It is, in fact, we believe as Christians, the most unloving thing to do to enable someone to be in willful rebellion against God and help them or make them feel accepted. Now, this does not mean that we hate anyone or, or we label people, but rather we're, we're real. We're realist. We're all sinners. And repentance means denying that sin, walking away from that sin, and, and finding satisfaction in Jesus alone. Brothers and sisters, you live in a world that is so confused on this point, but it is the message the apostles had, and it's the message we have. A message of forgiveness, a message of reconciliation by repentance and faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are ministers of reconciliation through the gospel. Through the gospel alone. We'll finally hear our final encounter very quickly. We see perhaps one you know most, best, O Thomas. Some label him as doubting Thomas. Some may be more practical Thomas. Seems quite practical, doesn't he? Unless I see, I won't believe. Perhaps that's been you too. We're told that Thomas kind of doubles down, doesn't he? Unless I see, I will never believe. Really, Thomas? Never? Thomas, throughout the gospel, he's always kind of rushing to, to put his foot in his mouth. Um, earlier in the gospel... Thomas is like, well, we're going to go to die. Let's die. When uh, Jesus went down to, to see Lazarus, he, he thought they were all going to go down there to die uh, with Lazarus, that there was just going to be some sort of suicide attempt. And, and he's like, all right, let's go. Interestingly, John calls him the twin here. And I think to really reinforce the point that John has. In other words... Just because your twin brother believes doesn't mean you're going to believe. Just because everyone around you believes doesn't mean you're going to believe. I mean, 10 people who he's lived with for the last three years have all testified. Besides all the, the ladies in the room, right? Besides all the Marys. Besides everyone else in the room, everyone has said Jesus has risen from the dead. Thomas is like, I don't think so. I don't believe it. Don't believe it for a second. And I won't believe it until I see. Oh, pastor, I'll believe in, when I can see Jesus. If I, could just see, if I could just have lived back there in the first century when Jesus walked, if I could have seen him break that bread, if I could have seen the fish multiplied, if I could have seen him cast out demons, if I could have seen, then I would have believed. And John here in this recording, this particular event, reminds us, no, you wouldn't have. You had a guy who had his best friends around him tell him that Jesus Christ died and rose again and he didn't believe. How much more you? How much more me? No, it required a supernatural act, didn't it? It required Jesus Christ meeting him in his grace. And there's so much we could unpack from this. The point here we want to take away is, is Thomas's confession. I mean, you want to talk about a story of, one, of going 360 degrees in an opposite direction. He went from, I'm never going to believe, to, to making the central confession, of the, the pinnacle confession in all of the Gospel of John. Upon the lips of babes, is it not? 
Jesus, eight days later, there's a sermon right there. If you want a good sermon to write, if you want to think about something, eight days later, we could preach that. Jesus doesn't uh, curtail to our demands. He waited. He waited eight whole days to come and, and reveal himself to Thomas. He kind of let him, you know, squirm a bit. But he comes to him. And he says, "Put my finger here. Put your finger here." And he reveals himself. And, and look at look at Thomas's confession, verse twenty-eight. And Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." He confesses that Jesus is not only Lord, but that He is the eternal God. No greater confession you'll find in all this gospel than that simple confession. And that's our confession this morning. To see Jesus as the risen Lord is to see Him as Lord and as God. To confess that Jesus is the eternal Lord. He is kurios. He's the one who created heaven and earth. He's the one who was in the beginning. He's the one who spoke into existence everything you see around us. He's the one who has authority and power over death. And Jesus here, in confronting Thomas, says that I am inaugurating a new era in redemptive history. He says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friend, he's talking about you this morning. Have you believed upon Jesus? Have, have you trusted these eyewitness accounts? Have you said, oh man, I'm believing because Thomas got to touch. And upon Thomas touching, he believed. Or, 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 or are you believing this morning because you, you believed John's eyewitness account as he stooped in and crawled into that dark tomb and he, he saw the linen cloth laying, laying there and he believed. Or perhaps this morning it was because of the confession of the Apostle Paul as he saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus and he, and he went a new way, you believe, this morning. Friends, we walk by faith and not by sight. As one author says, as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus brings a revolutionary change in our perspective. We don't live forever the seen, but the unseen. We don't live for the seen the material things in this world, we live for the unseen, the eternal things. The, re the resurrection of Jesus gives us a radically new perspective. And the point that John wants and the point of this whole time this morning has been, do you also want to see the risen Lord? Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. They're not written down. These are sufficient, John says. You don't need other signs. These signs and this sign, the sign of the resurrection is all you need to believe this morning. And so believe on him. If you choose this morning not to believe on him. Then you put your hands into God's eternal judgment. The point is simple. It's the whole point. He picked up the pen to write this this book. The whole point that we've been studying, that you might believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And that by giving your life to Him, by living a surrendered life, you might have eternal life. He doesn't want you to improve your life. He doesn't want to make a mold of your life. He doesn't want to replicate your life. Your life and my life stink. 
He's not impressed by anything you've accomplished in this life, anything you've done in this life, no matter how great or terrible your kids are or how awesome or good you are and talented in your job. He does not care about those things. He cares about your life being transformed and made into the image of his son. And as a Christian this morning, you're really the question you should be wrestling with is, do I look more and more like the risen Lord today than I did yesterday? Am I being transformed by one degree of glory to the next into the risen Lord? Do I live a transformed life? And friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, will you surrender to Jesus? Stop living your life your own way. There is a room of folks here that have gathered that one by one would stand before you and confess to you. If you don't stop living life your own way, you're going to die in your sin. And you can try to explain away sin all you want and you can try to justify your rebellion against God. But fundamentally, if you don't stop, Jesus will stop you. And his stop for you is a grave where the worm does not die and the flame is not quenched. Friend, Jesus is vindicated in death. He declares ultimate victory over death that we might live in him. Brothers and sisters, reassure your hearts this morning that Jesus Christ lives and we live in him forever. That we will never die if you are in Jesus this morning. Though your physical body will cease to exist, your spiritual body will live forever. And one day Jesus is coming again. And what what these disciples experience on that day, you and I will experience. The dead in Christ will rise. And tombs will burst open. And we will live forever in him. Believe in these eyewitness accounts. Trust them today. Put your... Put your faith in them. Believe in them. Trust the resurrection of Christ gives you this new perspective. This newfound eyes to see. With eternal sight, may you trust. I conclude with this quote. About what it means to live in light of the resurrection. What it means to live in light of the hope of the resurrection. C.S. Lewis. Many of you know him. Author of the... Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote and captured so beautifully, so powerfully in this word picture. Listen to what Lewis wrote. He says, we are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum. Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at sea. And he concludes with this, and this is what I want you to take away. We are far too easily pleased. Perhaps that's you this morning. More pleased by the glamour of this world when you could have eternity with Jesus. Friend, you too can experience infinite joy of the resurrection. You too could have hope this morning if you'll trust in him today. Let's pray.
Father, we pray this morning that your will is done. We pray that you would bring folks from death to life, that you would reassure our hearts in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has risen from the dead, and that because he lives, because he lives, we can have hope, we can have the faith to endure. For your glory and our good we pray in Christ's name. Amen.